It's only entertainment. Welcome back to the Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got George Mancharel, and he's CEO and co-founder of Bespoke Financial. George, thanks for being with us at the Talking Hedge. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about Bespoke Financial, how you got started, what your revenue model is, how you guys are operating. Sure. Yeah. So um, just starting from the top, Bespoke Financial is a fintech platform. We are a licensed commercial lender, and we focus on providing debt financing, um, non-dilutive financing to cannabis companies all across the supply chain. And our focus, you know, if you look at our list of clients right now, we work with operators that really, you know, really do span the entire universe when it comes to cannabis. Uh, we lend to borrowers in 15 states across the U.S. And, um, <clears throat> you know, in terms of the the genesis of the company, prior to co-founding Bespoke, I come from a very traditional finance background. Um, you know, worked in investment banks and asset management firms, um, always with a focus on lending and debt investments. And so, you know, when adult use sales in California turned on in 2018. You know, I'm a huge believer in the product that is cannabis and its potential going forward, just in terms of improving the quality of life, um, but also from a recreational standpoint. And so I saw a very exciting opportunity to move into a new industry. And so, you know, with my background being in lending and, uh, and debt financing, it was glaringly obvious that that didn't exist for cannabis. And so if you have the, the thesis that cannabis in a number of years will operate similar to any other consumer product industry, you can point to comps like alcohol, you can point to comps like tobacco, pharmaceuticals. All of those comp industries are reliant on functioning debt financing markets. And so the idea behind Bespoke was to really lead the path in terms of defining that market and approaching this from a fintech angle really did give us scalability in in terms of being able to service a broad array of operators um, in as quick of a time as possible. And I, I think that was one of the compelling parts of it too, is that when you build an industry in the modern era, you can actually take advantage of the technological advancements that have happened rather than trying to build a very old school sort of uh, market or service. Let's uh, dive into a couple of things that you're offering, because some of it is is uh, fairly easy to understand. A lot of the audience, uh, you know, uh, doesn't necessarily uh, get involved with with lending products, especially with cannabis. But I think some of it is fairly normal, like a line of credit, which is mm -hmm. basically just uh, a credit card. You know, you can borrow from it, pay it back. The difference maybe with a line of credit is there's cash. You can pull cash out. Can you explain to the audience who may not understand the difference uh, between inventory financing and invoice financing. One is from sure. tangible products inventory. The other one is uh, money that they might be getting as a service. So there's no, nothing tangible to take collateral on. But the process in which you uh, do your due diligence, is it the same? What is the difference between inventory financing and invoice financing from a back end standpoint? Yeah, so I'm um, just starting from a high level, you know, all companies that are interested in our financing go through the same application process. Um, you know, Bespoke does not work with pre-revenue companies at this point. So we ask for just the standard financials for any company that approaches us. The analysis that we do and the products that we ultimately approve applicants for is dependent on a couple different things. One, the state of the company itself in terms of its own maturation. 
Um, obviously, if you have a more mature company with a strong balance sheet full of assets, you are inclined as a lender to provide more flexibility and freedom to that borrower because there's just a greater collateral cushion there. However, if you have a company that's very new um, or just because of the part of their supply chain, they remain very asset light, you're going to want to make sure that the capital you provide actually serves its purpose. And our goal is identifying companies that understand their business, understand their margins, and are really just limited by this access to capital, right? They can't take advantage of economies of scale. They can't move into new growth opportunities, but we want to provide that capital in a very measured way and in a very appropriate way. So, you know, just looking at the two products you mentioned that we offer, you know, Inventory financing is, you know, addressing the part of the, the challenge that companies like a manufacturer would face. If you're producing, you know, let's say edibles in the cannabis industry, you have to go out and purchase raw materials, whether that's, you know, the actual distillate that you would infuse gummies with, the actual edible product itself, the packaging associated with it. All of these are recurring costs and expenses for the manufacturer. And so by working with us with inventory financing, our borrowers can now go submit POs for the raw materials that they want. They can increase the size of their operations, purchasing more raw materials to be more efficient. Um, and ultimately, what Bespoke does is we advance a payment directly to our borrowers' vendors for the product and the raw materials that our borrowers want to produce. Once our borrowers have the raw materials, then it's their job to actually finish production, ultimately sell the product to their own customers down the supply chain, and repay bespoke so that they can recycle that capital and now put it into the next production cycle. The flip side of that would be the other product you mentioned, invoice financing. Let's say you know that same manufacturer, for whatever reason, is selling to customers who are not paying them on delivery. So they're dropping off finished goods at a dispensary, but the dispensary needs to sell that product in order to have enough cash to pay the manufacturer for the inventory they purchased. Invoice financing is a tool that we offer that allows a company like this manufacturer to access capital that's tied up in their accounts receivable. So accounts receivable is just all these payments that they're waiting on receiving from their customers. With invoice financing, these companies can borrow against that pool and access that capital up front. And ultimately, the consumers would pay bespoke um, whenever they're in, they're in a position to pay or they have time to pay. So depending on where the challenge is for any company that we're evaluating, whether it's in terms of sourcing new raw materials, whether it's dealing with the long cash flow collection cycle, the difference in our products is really meant to solve as best and as nuanced as possible the, the specific challenges for each company. Can you tell us a little bit about what purchase money financing is? You, you talked about inventory and invoice financing. It sounds like purchase money could be thrown in, you know, in one of those. Uh, I haven't actually heard of purchase money financing exactly like that. Maybe you can kind of explain what that is and why it might be useful. Yeah, it's it's a it's actually a hybrid of the two products that uh, that I mentioned before, and it's actually a product that works very well when you're dealing with, you know, oddly enough, CBD companies. Um, or any sort of non-plant touching brand within the cannabis space. And so, you know, I identified two different problems between sourcing inventory and collecting cash, but there are lots of businesses that sit right in the middle of the supply chain that have both pressures. And so purchase money financing is, is a tool that we have that allows us to do both with the same customer. It's effectively paying for the raw materials, advancing payment to their vendors, allowing that manufacturer to finish production of their goods and sell the product to their own client base, and then ultimately access whatever excess cash they can, 
before their customers actually pay. And so Bespoke acts as a conduit of the capital. And really what this allows these brands to do is instead of you know worrying about how to pay their manufacturing partner or how to go chase up collections from their own customers, they're free to really focus on what their job should be, which is growing the brand and, and really building that consumer base. And so um, each one of these products, again, the qualification is different because as you can see, there's different levels of freedom that any of the borrowers can have in terms of how they use our capital. Very different from our general line of credit, which is the most flexible form of finance that we offer where companies are, are effectively allowed to you know, either use the capital in terms of drawing it down themselves or advancing payment to their vendor. And so the distinction in tiers here and in product is really just meant to allow us to not have to say no to a new company that we think is very promising and could really benefit from our capital. And it's to provide enough versatility so that we have enough solutions so that any company with no matter what side of the balance sheet they have the, the capital crunch on, that we have some kind of service or a tool that can help alleviate that burden. Do you ever make any exceptions? You mentioned you don't generally lend pre-money revenue, but if if there was a CBD company and they haven't made any money, it's really easy to say, no, good luck. But if you're looking at a limited license state and they need some capital to expand or scale or whatever, and they just haven't opened up shop yet to have that revenue generation, is that something that you guys look at anyways? Or do you just sort of wait until there is revenue? How do you look at kind of FOMO situations when you know there's going to be revenue? Sure. Yeah. And and I would say, you know, expansion is totally different in our in our mind from a brand new business that's starting from from the ground up right so if there's already an existing business but you know the company decides to expand across the supply chain so you have a cultivation arm and now they're moving into manufacturing or you know you have a distribution arm and you're moving into the retail space that there there are there's already an existing business there's already assets where we could feel comfortable that our capital would be secured against something so that actually is part of our process. And we've seen a lot of our clients grow and expand out in terms of their business focus using our funds. Um, so that's very much you know, something that we would look, look to service. It's a little bit different in terms of you know, thinking about the opportunity or the FOMO, as you mentioned. You know, we're lenders and, and you know, lenders tend to be more conservative because our outcomes are very different from equity investors. You know, an equity investor who gets in very early you're facing, you know, much higher returns, multiples of your capital if things go things go absolutely correctly, and that's you know the model that you see many venture capital firms where they can invest in a broad portfolio of new companies, and not all of them need to succeed in order for the fund strategy to to really work. With lending, it's very different. Our upside is capped. <laughs> you know, I, I tell our team all the time. You know, our best case scenario is things go according to plan, and you collect your interest and you get your return of principal. And, you know, that's the end of the deal. Uh, on the flip side, there's, a, you know, innumerable number of ways where, where the deal could go sour, where, you know, the borrower might default, where the business comes under pressure and doesn't have enough cash flow to service its debt. And so for us, we're less concerned about missing out because, you know, lending is going to be an integral part of all these companies for their entire, you know, operational lives. Uh, you know, they're always going to have these capital needs. They're always going to have these purchasing needs. And so, you know, for us, we pause and wait until a company has some revenue just so that we can actually understand what the margins of the business are, understand the effectiveness of the management team, really make sure that the team understands what they're building towards and how they would use our capital. And so we're, we're necessarily a bit more measured 
as opposed to an equity investor who would be mostly concerned in identifying the good companies early to, to get in on the ground floor. I've noticed uh, this year, there's a lot more, um, there's, there's a lot of change in the way that folks are going out trying to generate revenue. So my day job is running a hedge fund that uses AI and ML for, you know, taking advantage of the volatility, but also right now it's just capital preservation. And mm -hmm. right now I'm also looking at like the Polaris equity fund, uh, Rob Seacrest over there getting like between nine and 12% annualized is really, really good. I've been to a lot of trading expos in February, they were bragging about being only negative 3%. When I was in Monaco two weeks ago, they were bragging about only being negative 17% when the market mm -hmm. is down like 30. So it seems like this is an advantageous time for debt, debt equity on the commercial side. Are you taking it? Are you able to take advantage of those opportunities, um, like a lease back option, for example, with the dispensary financing? Um, tell me a little bit about those opportunities. Yeah, I mean, the, the broad universe of, of debt for cannabis, I'd say, you know, comprises of a handful of options. And really, the, the reason why there aren't more is just the federal illegality that, that currently exists. So, you know, the sale leasebacks, um, you know, the Polaris of the world, all of these are basically focused on the commercial real estate side. And I'd say that's probably the most well-defined and liquid space in, in the debt universe when it comes to cannabis, because... These are commercial lenders, you know, valuations on a building are more or less standardized. You can add some premium or have some, you know, cannabis specific projections to any licensed property. But for the most part, you're treating it as land and you're treating it as a facility. So it's much easier for investors to wrap their head around. And when I say investors, I mean the capital behind these REITs, the investors that actually put money into these deals that ultimately flow to these cannabis companies it's much easier for them to wrap their head around what happens in the downside scenario. You know, what do we, what do, what do we do with this property if suddenly the, the tenant defaults? For us, you know, we've never been active in the real estate space exactly because we think, you know, for the most part, that problem, you know, there are good solutions that exist in the market. And second, there's a whole host, and I'd say, you know, probably the majority of cannabis companies that exist in the country today don't actually own the real estate. You know, they're on leases already with, with whoever the property owner is. And so providing a solution to that section of the industry, and, and you know, that's what, what helped us, you know, sort of define out our lending products as they exist today. Um, all, of our, all of our financing is really focused on the operational side of the business, whereas, you know, the commercial real estate side. I'd say it's a, it's a different beast entirely, and it's and it's distinct from what our core focus is. Is it is it simply build it and they will come? There's there was an investor that I was working with on a project that was um, kind of like uh, it was basically bringing in lenders and bringing in entrepreneurs together, lenders and borrowers. Um, mm -hmm. And it wasn't a matter of just kind of building this website. There was compliance behind it. And I'm wondering, are you, Washington State is, is one of the second uh, most strict behind uh, New York in terms of, you know, um, if you want to be um, uh, a money transmitting service, for example, or anything, it's really, really strict. And I, I think people look at, at compliance and think, oh, yeah, I have trace and tracking and that's all I have to do, or I have my, my state regulator or whatever. But there's so many more regulations when it comes to financing um, what are some of the, the roadblocks or hurdles that you've had to go through in order to remain in business? Um, talk to us a little about the, the compliance behind all of this. 
Yeah, so I mean, from day one, we've operated in a, a weird space, which is that, you know, cannabis is legal on a state level, but it's illegal on a federal level. Um, for us, we have always been very conservative in order to make sure that exactly to your point that both ourselves and the, the companies that we work with are in adherence with, you know, both sets of regulation. And, you know, we look at each state as its own market. And before we move into a new state or work with a borrower in a particular state, we have to do a deep analysis of exactly what's required of us, what's required of the borrower, and what's allowed in terms of financing activity. And so, you know, hurdle-wise, it's, it's really been more of a question of investment um, before we move into a new market, making sure we've done our due diligence. Our review of applicants and companies, like I said, it's fairly standardized where we do not just to focus on the financial analysis, but also compliance, rigorous compliance checks, right? Ensuring that these are licensed operators, ensuring that, you know, we're doing um, searches on the management team itself, making sure that, you know, through our on-site, you know, audits and, and you know, sort of uh, meetings with, with the team, really understanding that the operators themselves are in compliance with everything that they need to be in compliance with, because, you know, straddling both, you know, the, the, legal market and the illicit market, it's something that may work in the short term, but, you know, we definitely are focused on operators that see the long-term value here. And, you know, the only way to monetize that is really by being as adherent to the regulation because, you know, enforcement is definitely light within this industry in general, but if it does hit, you know, it can threaten your entire business and, and the future success of your business. And so for us, it's always been integral that we make sure we screen with, you know, very standardized procedures that any financial institution would use, you know, KYC, AML, really just checking to make sure that we've, we've filtered out all and any potential bad actors. Mm. With a looming recession, uh, do you think that's going to sink the cannabis industry? Or do you think that vice, you know, sin, sin stocks and sin products are going to uh, continue to, to be what they are, which is a vice that people hold on to really tight? Yeah, um, it's, it's an interesting question. This has long been a theory for, you know, proponents of the cannabis industry. It's that, you know, similar to alcohol, similar to tobacco, you know, that this would be a recession-proof product. And so, you know, there's, there's two aspects. I'd say internally, we've done some research, and we've definitely seen that, you know, there's a very high correlation between cannabis sales and alcohol sales in markets that have been around for the longest, right? That are somewhat mature and have somewhat normalized. Um, a very, very strong correlation, close to one-to-one. -one. But the caveat there being that no legal market has existed during the previous recession. So it still is you know, untested in terms of practice. That being said, I think that you know, the, just the evidence that we've seen in states like Oregon, Colorado, and California really do point to the fact that cannabis has already become a consumer staple for its existing consumer base. And I think that consumer base is set to grow in the years going forward. That being said, um, you know, a broader recession that reduces people's disposable income and inflation that further reduces uh, disposable income will have an impact on, on you know, ultimate consumer activity and consumer sales. So I think there's a strong balance between the two pressures that are both favorable and not. And oddly enough, cannabis is the only industry, especially in the mature markets, that's, you know, hugely deflationary right now. You know, if you look at, you know, again, Colorado, Oregon, California, 
these are markets that are dealing with oversupply, um, set oversaturation in terms of just biomass and product. Um, you know, you're seeing a shaking out in terms of brands, you're seeing consolidation across the industry. And so, you know, to some degree, that is beneficial in the sense that consumers finally have a product where prices aren't continually increasing. But that being said, it's, it's, it's very difficult for businesses that have projected their, their forecast based off of much higher prices and, you know, trying to figure out how they can continue to operate um, and sustain their businesses is definitely the challenge that's in front of them. Our, our take on it has been that this is the new normal. You know, this is actually what you would expect to see in a good maturing market. You see supply catch up to demand. You know, the whole, the whole uh, anti-tax chorus in the cannabis world, and I think they've been right, has said, you know, taxes really do make the illicit market stronger. It makes it harder for the legal market to succeed. Consumers generally don't like paying more for the same product when they could pay less. Uh, this deflationary tide, as much as it is hurting businesses, and they do have to, you know, really take a look at their business models to make sure they can survive in this new paradigm. This is also how you win against the illicit market, right? You just get more cost competitive and you're going to have to make it up on volume. You're going to have to make it up in terms of sourcing new consumers, finding new ways to attract new newcomers into the space, new products to offer to, to the consumer base. But I think, you know, if you didn't see this, it would actually point to, I think, more stress in the sense that this market isn't taking off as it should, or there isn't enough demand from the consumer side. And so as painful as it is, and as sudden as, as the deflationary trends have been, I actually think it's, it's, you know, it was only a matter of time and, and, you know, companies that are expecting things to bounce back to normal or 2020s prices are going to be in for, I think, a very rude awakening. Yeah, maybe Philadelphia, when they come online, won't be able to put the you know seven thousand dollars a pound that they were maybe anticipating. All those people are going to have to come back down to reality. Um, it doesn't right. take long, anyways. When a when a new emerging market has those high prices, it doesn't take long to start to see that dip in every single new rollout. Yep. <clears throat> Which leads me to my next question about what's the next what what subsectors are still attracting equity capital? You've got real estate at the all time highs, and you can see in every major market, there's a massive amount of available real estate. And so once speculators leave, and they're not propping those prices up, those prices will crash. Mm -hmm. um, if you have central bank digital coins repricing everything, who knows what prices are going to land at. So when we're in this uncertain market where real estate is going to crash, where commodities are, are sky high, and people are reallocating their own capital to uh, away from cannabis or, or whatever else to essential goods and services because they can't afford anything right now, gas prices and everything else. Um, what's left in the cannabis space to invest in from what you're seeing? Is it distressed assets on the West Coast? Is it new emerging markets and FOMO? And within that, East Coast, West Coast, which cannabis subsectors are still attracting equity capital? Sure. Uh, just starting with the equity capital question, you know, the industry really went through a couple different phases of fervor, I would say, you know, 2017, 2018, definitely there was a lot of, you know, speculation, uh, especially on the part of equity investors that federal legalization was right around the corner in, in line with, you know, Canada's legalization. That led to an ultimate, you know, complete retreat from equity investors in 2019. And I'll be honest, there really hasn't been a sizable return to the market on, on the part of equity investors. You see it on the margin 
you know, you'll see investments in ancillary companies and, you know, there are brands and there are companies that do manage to raise capital, but nothing at the scale that you saw in, in the years prior to it. And investors definitely have, have taken a much sharper eye and you've seen investor demand kind of float around, you know, 2019, 2020, there was, a, I think, a much higher uh, interest in terms of investing in brands with this idea of building the next national sort of consumer product brand, similar to a Coca-Cola of Pepsi. Um, and so that ultimately, you know, ran into the issues of state-specific regulation and state-specific marketing and, and the lack of the ability for, you know, one operator to really have good control of the consumer experience across multiple different markets, given the completely different dynamics that existed in each of those spaces. And so equity investors, I think, have rightfully so because of the, the challenges and the headwinds that have, you know, presented themselves to the industry and the federal illegality, again, being a huge blocker. Um, I think there's a, a, a lot of cautious, you know, selective investments that are happening across the board, but um, it's, it's significantly pared down. And this is actually the first year that you see debt financing. You know, if you look at the cannabis industry and how it finances itself, you know, there's equity capital and there's debt capital. This is the first year that debt's actually, well, I think last year towards the tail end, the trend got especially accelerated. But if you look at this year, you know, the companies that are raising money are, are mostly choosing to do it. I'm sorry are mostly choosing to do it uh, through debt, debt capital and debt financing. And so for me, you know, I, I, I look at this and I think, you know, any equity investor should be excited about the, the cannabis space. Um, but there are just regulatory hurdles that I think are keeping, keeping companies on the sidelines. How cannabis shakes out relative to every other investment that's possible in this entire, in, in this environment, you know, again, I do think it, it is, a, it, it does have very compelling arguments. But the problems that plague it, a lot of them are political and a lot of them are regulatory. And so, you know, that's very difficult for investors to really, you know, front run. And at the same time, it just makes it incredibly hard for these companies to raise around it. It has been incredibly difficult to raise. They, there's um, momentum. These Momo stocks move with the news rather than individual uh, fundamentals, which, you know, haven't been used in a long time. So even technicals, um, aren't, aren't being utilized in the cannabis space right now. It's just news. So I'm curious with that, um, is the issuance of debt in order to avoid the dilution of, of equity shares or is it FOMO that people are just willing to accept anything, whether it's debt or equity? I'm curious why there's an, um, an increase in debt issuance within the cannabis space. Is it simply because uh, fundamentally it doesn't make sense? Or is it because people just take whatever they can get? I think it's a mix. It's a mix of, of those factors and more. Um, in general, I do think the universe of debt in debt capital providers has increased um, when it comes to cannabis specifically. You know, fundraising for us. You know, since our founding in 2018, we've gotten a, a front row pulse on you know what the broader investor universe thinks of cannabis and how active they are. And so there's definitely been improvement and an increase in the amount of capital that's looking and being deployed in cannabis. So the supply of that debt financing capital has definitely increased. Um, I think the industry's educated itself a lot about how it can use debt, um, you know, especially in legacy markets uh, that turn to adult use. We ourselves have had to do a fair amount of education with companies that we speak with just so that they understand exactly how debt financing can benefit them. And, you know, explaining, you know, really how, how it works that's different from equity capital. And so I think the industry's 
natural maturation, um, you know, naturally attracting, you know, entrepreneurs that come from other industries and, you know, have a model of how they've built and scaled other businesses and how they've used debt in the past is definitely helping the demand side for debt financing increase as well. All right. Uh, we talked a lot, George, is there anything I'm, I left out that you want to cover? Um, I mean, I, I'd say, you know, the biggest news by far this week has been uh, Chuck Schumer and, and Cory Booker's introduction of their uh, CAOA Act, um, you know, the, the broad swipe at, at federal legalization. And so, you know, granted, it came out yesterday, it's 300 pages, and I haven't read it. Um, so caveat everything I'm about to say with that. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a huge pivotal moment for the industry overall. Um, personally, I, I don't expect that this version of the bill gets passed or that it gets passed very quickly. Um, there are aspects of it that, you know, I've seen that seem very, very positive and very beneficial for the industry um, in terms of re removing some of these hurdles for access to broader financing, you know, descheduling the, the, the plant itself. Those are good. Um, I do think there are certain components that actually will have to see how the political environment responds to what the actual legislation says when it when it comes to the treatment of states' rights. And, you know, I think the bill is going to be very interesting to follow in, in terms of how it's debated, because I think especially when you look at state rights and interstate commerce, it tries to please all sides and may walk away not doing anything that it, it highlighted as being important or really serving some of the biggest uh, objectives that, that the bill claimed to. Um, primarily being, you know, states are theoretically under, under the current draft, states are allowed to decide whether cannabis is legal or not in their, in their state. However, they can't prohibit the transport of cannabis between two legal markets through their jurisdiction. And I don't understand how that would feasibly work from anyone who's concerned with, you know, a state's rights issue. And second, it kind of just turned this overall growth opportunity in this industry into a little bit of a zero-sum game. Um, whereby, you know, larger companies, mature markets would necessarily have an advantage over smaller cannabis companies and also newer cannabis markets, right? You know, New York is going through their licensing, trying to establish a cannabis industry themselves. If something like this bill were in place that allowed for interstate commerce, you know, there'd be almost no motivation to set up cultivation or manufacturing facilities in New York when you can just buy much cheaper product from the West Coast or any of these saturated markets, right? And so, um, you know, I think I think those are those are components that I hope uh, you know the senators and the politicians involved really do drill into, and each state really understands what the impact would be for itself, um, as opposed to you know using this rollback of prohibition as a really really good opportunity to promote economic growth and undo the harm of of you know cannabis's prohibition in communities across the country rather than having it, you know, the benefits of that reside in just pockets of, of the country. Yeah, I spoke to Riv Capital, who spent a quarter billion dollars going into New York to grab uh, a couple of dispensaries. And I just said, you must know something we don't about the lack of legalization, because there's no way you would spend $240 million if legalization was right around the corner, uh, yeah. which, you know, has got everybody going to Florida to grow <laughs> when the reality yeah. is, is long term. That's the worst possible spot you could have any kind of flower type product that's really dense because you're just asking for mold and powdery mildew and spider mites and all those other issues. But um, that's just something that's going to have to play out. 
yeah, it's it's hyper regional, and and again, it's I, I I expect this bill to to go through numerous edits before, if and when it 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 is passed. I think the the huge silver lining and like the huge the reason why it should be very exciting is that there's never going to be one cure all piece of legislation that undoes this prohibition of cannabis. It's always gonna it was always gonna have to be a series of steps um, and you know trial and error. We've seen you know states take vastly different approaches to legalizing cannabis and some have worked better than others and there's definitely lessons to be learned um but for us it's you know anything that moves this industry further into legitimacy and really helps these operators is a huge win across the board and you know nothing nothing will ever be a perfect solution um but you know we're, we're just starting this discourse and so we'll see what you know the respective voices at the table have to say about it and and how this unfolds but again i think this is this is still a long journey ahead of us and in the interim, you know, companies really do have to, you know, continue to make sure that they remain operational and, and they, they survive and grow as much as possible so that ultimately, whenever this does get passed, they're well positioned to, to take advantage of that momentum. We're going to have to wrap this one up, but I think that ultimately the, the biggest takeaway might be the 280E. Uh, yep. If they get rid of 280E, overnight, these companies will be able to be profitable. And I think that'll be the biggest component uh, to, to all of this. Banking is already there. Um, interstate commerce will help the redundancies, but that 280E aspect, I think, is going to really make a lot of these businesses profitable more than any other single individual component. I think will have the yep. biggest impact. I agree. <laughs> all right. Well, let's leave it with that then. I want to thank my guest, George Manchero. He is the CEO and co-founder of uh, bespoke financial where are you guys at social media website yeah so um you know we are uh, our website is bespokefinancial.com um you know i think that's probably the best avenue for any company that's interested to explore our financing or start the conversation you know please do feel free to reach out um and you know thank you again for for having me on on the podcast today it was really fun chatting about all this with you yeah appreciate it george mantrell uh, ceo co-founder of bespoke financial Appreciate you being on The Talking Hedge. Thanks, Josh. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out a major journey today on all major podcast platforms.